and we're beginning at verse 19. Acts 11, verse 19. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Father, we are so very grateful for your word, your timeless, enduring, good, perfect, life-giving word. May you help me as I speak and help all of us as we listen to understand, receive, and live in the good of what we hear from you today. In Jesus' name, amen. What's in a name? In 1997, Mother Teresa of Calcutta died at the age of 87. One of the best known faces of the second half of the 20th century. She was described as that great 20th century humanitarian. She was born in what is now the capital of Macedonia. Her parents were of Albanian descent, and she received a calling from God at the age of 12 to devote her life to Christ. As a nun, she went to India to live with and serve the poor in Calcutta. There she founded the Missionaries of Charity and remained in Calcutta until her death. She was given many awards, including a Nobel Peace Prize. She suffered with ill health, including heart problems in her later years, and died of a heart attack. Mother Teresa was not without her critics, but to devote her life to the poorest of the poor in Calcutta, I think, places her above those critics. Summing up her life in characteristically self-effacing fashion, she said, by blood, I am Albanian, by citizenship, an Indian, by faith, I am a Catholic nun. As to my calling, I belong to the world, 
as to my heart, I belong entirely to the heart of Jesus. What's in a name? How would you describe yourself? You could describe me as an evangelical, if by that you meant that I believe that the Bible is the word of God. You could describe me as a charismatic, if by that you meant that I couldn't live without the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You could call me a Baptist if you wanted, if by that you meant that I believe that all Christians should be baptised. And you could even call me a Catholic, if by that you mean that I belong to the worldwide apostolic church. But at root, I'm a Christian. No more, I hope, and no less. When Jesus was talking to his disciples, he said, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. We'll come back to that. As Luke continues his story, his explanation about how the good news travels from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, this good news about Jesus being the rightful king of the whole earth, we travel to Antioch. According to the historians, Antioch was the third most important city in the Roman Empire after Rome and Alexandria. And William Barclay, that great commentator, says this, it was a lovely cosmopolitan city, but she was a byword for luxurious immorality. She was famous for a kind of deliberate pursuit of pleasure, which went on literally day and night. The morals of Daphne, a god whose temple stood near the town, was a phrase that all the world knew for loose and lustful living. And it's in that melting pot that the followers of Jesus are first called Christians. It began by being a nickname, and the ending means belonging to the party of. So Christ, Ian, means belonging to the party of Christ, or those Christ folk. And it was half mocking, half jesting, but wholly contemptuous nickname. But the Christians took it and made it the name which the world would all come to know. By their lives, they made it a name not of contempt, but of courage and love, at which all would wonder. Christians are simply this, my friends, followers of Jesus Christ. We belong to him. We belong to the party of Christ. We are Christ folk. And something about the people at Antioch made the other folk think of Jesus they were letting their light shine before others. And in doing so, somehow or other, that triggered something in the eyes and hearts of those who watched them. And they connected what they saw to what they'd heard about of Jesus. So we are meant to be just like Jesus. Jesus says, after he had been raised from the dead to those early disciples, he said this, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. There's a similarity 
between the way the Father sent the Son and the way the Son sends us. Jesus said right at the beginning of his ministry, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. So what's the end of that? What's the point of that? Jesus showed us what kind of kingdom the kingdom of God is like. It's a kingdom of righteousness, of peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, says Paul. But he also showed us how the king lives and how the king reigns in that kingdom. So the disciples were sent in exactly the same way, to bear witness to the kingdom of God and to the way that king reigns on earth, to demonstrate the kingly reign of Jesus on earth now. So when the people of Antioch mockingly called them those Christ folk, little did they know that they were confirming the Christian calling in the highest possible terms. That was precisely what they were meant to be. So let me pick out just one or two things about what they must have seen. When Barnabas, an envoy from the Jerusalem church, arrives, he sees the evidence of the grace of God. I wonder if I were to ask you what you thought that was, what you would say. What is the evidence that you can actually see? He sees the evidence of the grace of God. I'd like to suggest to you it's something along the lines of a gratitude and a generosity and a humility. Those who have been saved by grace know what they've been saved from and how they could not have been saved were it not for God. And they will always be eternally grateful. Gratitude should be a deep mark of every Christian. Eternal gratitude to God. But it also results in a generosity of spirit. Some have gone to different places, just speaking to Jews, because they are Jews themselves, the people of God. But others have grasped this grace and have realized that if they have been saved by grace, then anybody can be saved by grace. So they don't just tell the Jews, they tell the Gentiles as well. They tell the Greeks, they tell anybody. There is a generosity of spirit. Freely you have received, said Jesus. Freely give. We will want to share the good news, not because we have to, but because it's our pleasure and our privilege to share the good news that anyone can be saved by grace. And humility. We're not told the name of any one of these believers who have been scattered because of their connection with the persecution with Stephen. We don't know their names, but this is a real hinge point. We've had the conversion of a number of Samaritans, but they were half Jews already in chapter 8. We've had the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch, but he was a God-fearer already. We've had the conversion of Paul, but he was a Jew. We've had the conversion of Cornelius, but he was a God-fearer. But here for the first time in Antioch, we have believers becoming, uh, people becoming believers from an totally pagan background without them having approached the church first. The church has gone to Antioch and presented the gospel. So this is one of those key points, and we never know the names of the people involved. What the church has always needed, and perhaps more than anything else, is people who get on with the work that God wants done without worrying about who gets the credit for it apart from God, so long as the work is being done. Humility. 
is one of those tasks, one of those things that you should manifest a Christian. And if you read a book like a biography of people like Lewis Palau or Billy Graham, you would find humility written across every page. These are humble men and many women too. We just do it because God gives them the grace to do it. Here's the second thing. In verse 26, Barnabas realizes that they need teaching. So he goes off and collects Paul. This is 10 years later than we last saw him in chapter 9. There's a 10-year gap here where he has been working through what God has been showing him and doing it at home in Tarsus. And Barnabas knows he needs this teacher, this man who understands the Greek mind, the Roman mind, the Jewish mind, who can argue the case for Christ. He knows who he should go and get. So he goes to get Paul. And for a whole year, they teach the church and a great number uh, are taught in that area. One of the genuine marks of a Christian is that you have a hunger and thirst for God. If I am no longer what I once was, praise God, because of the grace of God, I certainly know that I'm not yet what I one day shall be. So I'm not content with where I am. I want to know more. And I want to know, to enter into everything that God has for me. I have a hunger for that, a thirst for that. I will be, in this sense, discontent with my spiritual life. I will not be satisfied where I am until I have entered into everything God has for me. So a teachable spirit is one of the marks of a Christian. I will want to learn everything I can about God. Who is this God of grace who has saved me so generously? I will want to know everything. And where better to look than in the book he wrote about himself? But the Bible is not a textbook for passing exams. It's not as if we put the effort in to memorizing the Bible, then God has to give us an award. The kingdom of God is much more gracious and much more generous than that. I read God's word because I want to be changed by God's word. I want to become more like Jesus. And here's another thought. They were filled with the spirit of God. It doesn't say that about all of them. It says it about Barnabas. But he's just an example of them all, filled with the Spirit of God. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. The proof of Christianity is that it works. It does change bad men into good men. It changes bad women into good women. It changes people. As I abide in Christ, as I rest in him, as I surrender my life to him, as I eagerly read God's word, the spirit of God increasingly forms the fruitfulness of Christ in my life. That's his promise. As I walk in step with the spirit, sowing seeds to please the spirit, I'm promised to reap eternal life. And remember, the context of all this is persecution. They were there because of the persecution this was not a sympathetic crowd. This was a city that had no interest in Jesus and were as likely to suffer persecution there as is anywhere else. But the perfect love of God poured into their hearts through the Holy Spirit whom God has given them is casting out their fears and courage is one of the marks of Christians. 
Then Luke adds a little detail at the end that seems almost irrelevant on the face of it as far as moving the story is concerned. Remember, he has limited space to tell his story. So it's interesting he mentions this, which doesn't move the story on a bit. He says that prophets came down from Jerusalem and predicted a severe famine. And he tells us what the church does as a response. Why did God send his son into the world? John's gospel tells us that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So why did Jesus send his disciples into the world? He did not send his disciples into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through their testimony to Jesus, the King of the world. When things go wrong, it prompts us to ask questions. In our day, what's gone wrong is a pandemic. We have COVID pandemic and my friends, we're in for the long haul. That's for clear, clear. In their day, they had a famine. It was a severe famine. And in a, in a culture where there aren't multinational supermarket chains that can provide food right across the world, this is a serious business. So it might have prompted questions like these. This must be a sign that the Lord is coming back. Have you heard the people say that? This pandemic is a sign that the Lord is coming back. This must mean that we have sinned and must repent. Or this will give us a great opportunity to tell the whole world that everyone has sinned and needs to repent. Both their famine and our pandemic might remake provoke these responses. Who is to blame for this? There's always that, isn't there? People looking around to see who we should blame. Is it the civic authorities in Syria, where Antioch is, or China in our day? Is it the Roman Empire in their day, or the USA, or the UK, whose ill treatment of the ecosystem might have contributed to this dangerous situation? You get those kind of responses. What kind of response did the Christians in Antioch get when they heard of this severe famine? Did they ask who was to blame? Did they point the finger? Did they see it as the Lord coming again? No, they didn't. They put all those things to one side. They asked these sort of questions. When this happens, who will be especially at risk. Who is going to be affected by this? Something is happening. What can we do about it? What can we do to help? And if there is something we can do to help, how do we make that help possible? And those of you who read Tom Wright will understand I'm getting some of these ideas from him, a clear thinker. This is something he said. Here we stumble upon one of the great principles of the kingdom of God, the principle that God's kingdom, inaugurated by Jesus, is all about restoring creation the way it was meant to be. God always wanted to work in his world through loyal human beings. And we can imagine the Antioch church figuring out prayerfully what God was doing. A famine was coming, so he would want, as his creation, people fed. 
And they didn't ask the question why the famine was occurring, but what was to be done to help? And realizing that what God was doing, he was going to do through them. That is part of believing in the work of the Holy Spirit. So the church in Antioch, the moment they hear of some great disaster happening, did not ask the question why. They asked the question, what can we do as a response? And you and I know at this present moment, many churches are asking exactly the same question. What can we do to help? How can we help people? And even on the news this morning, as we listened to Radio Sussex, we heard that a church in Eastbourne is doing something to help people in debt because they understand that this pandemic has caused many people to go into an unexpected debt. So they're now doing something concrete to help people in debt, not just Christians, but anybody. That's the sort of question the Antioch Church was asking. And historians tell us that this action in Antioch was unprecedented. Never in before in world history had a multicultural group of people showed any fraternal interest in another group that had no connection with them 300 miles away, which was what was happening here. So what they did was answer their own questions. When this happens, who will be at special risk? Well, the church in Jerusalem will be at special risk because they got crowds of people who came up for Passover, who many have stayed. And the persecution has impoverished many, so they've already been sharing expenses with one another. So what can we do to help? We can take up an offering and we can send it down there. We don't all have to go. We can send Paul and Barnabas on our behalf. So that's precisely what they did. And the church in Antioch and the church in Jerusalem were seen to be part of the same community of God's people. We belong to each other across races, cultures, wealth, prestige, or any other human division. After all, isn't that what families do in crises? Don't you make sure you look after each other? So the pandemic is not over. But even if it was, nothing would change for us, my friends, because we are still called here to be the ones through whom God will bring about his purposes of restoring his creation. We pray it every day, don't we? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. And when we pray, we always put ourselves in the place where we say, Lord, if you can answer this prayer through me, then answer it through me. So when we pray that prayer, we are offering ourselves to God. So embraced by the grace and filled with God's spirit, let us offer ourselves to be those to whom our heavenly father may bring about his earthly desires, to bring about his earthly creation, to be as it always should have been. Let us be those to whom God's work can be done. Let me give you an imaginary conversation between a Christian and a non-Christian. And the Christian has been testifying to the non-Christian about God. And the non-Christian says, prove to me God helps you. Prove to me that God makes a difference in your life. The Christian might say this in this imaginary conversation. Suppose I were to ask you how you know that the stunning girlfriend you mentioned loves you. Proof of love 
strictly speaking, is impossible. But perception is not impossible. If I spent some time observing you and your girlfriend, I think I could tell whether or not she loved you. Why don't you watch us closely for the next few months? And if you cannot perceive that God is with us and helps us in our daily lives, then it will be idle for me to assert it. I just hope you will come to see, maybe through us, that God is real. My friends, the world is watching closely. And Jesus said, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. That's what brought about the big change in Antioch, where great numbers of people came into the kingdom of God, because these people, these ordinary people, filled with the grace of God, were just like Jesus. What's in a name? Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the work that you've done in our lives. And we are eternally grateful that we are no longer what we once were. And we are on this journey to see you face to face. Help us by your spirit to be so full of your love and grace that we may overflow. And all that we do in any context in this coming week will demonstrate that you are with us, restoring your creation through the likes of us and including anyone and everyone who wants to be saved. Father, glorify your name in us and through us. For Jesus' sake. Amen.